Mark 15, Jesus delivered to Pilate, and as soon it was as and as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away, delivered him to, over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many changes they bring against you, charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas and said. And Pilate again said to them, and then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having it, uh, scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And the Jesus is mocked. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. <clears throat> And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they, had, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph in Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Would you all pray with me again? Jesus, we've just heard of your death, your crucifixion on our behalf. Would you now be with us as we hear the preaching of your word? Would you enable us to understand it and help us not to see this just as a ritual, repetitious, ceremonial thing that we do once a year on this day called Easter, but that this message would ring true in our hearts and in our minds that you would speak the truth of your gospel to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are covering this chapter in Mark because we've been going through the gospel of Mark this spring. And so, if you have not been able to be with us, we have learned over the course of this, um, this series who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God who became the Son of Man. He is the miraculous worker, the one who cares for people and heals people and demonstrates authority and power. And this morning, what we're going to see is that this Jesus was killed, was nailed to a cross. And I know typically on Easter morning, we're supposed to talk and focus on the resurrection, But I wanted to really show you this morning why Jesus' death was necessary, but why really it was was countercultural in many ways, but also it was shocking to his disciples and his followers that this one who they thought was going to be king, the, the one that they thought was going to bring the kingdom of God and take over their enemies, was now truly dead, really dead. And and so why focus on death? We don't like to talk about death, do we? People don't like to think about death. They don't like to talk about death. They they try to um, pretty up death situations when a family member dies. They try to make it less hard and a little bit easier to swallow. But in reality, death is a reality. All of us will face death one way or another. There is a preacher 
by the name. I left my outline over there. I'm going to need that. Do you see it on that pew back there? Yeah, it's got all kind of highlights and notes and all kind of good stuff on it. There was a preacher by the name of Jack Arnold. He was a pastor in Oviedo, Florida. And in 2005, he was preaching on his life verse. He was actually a pastor at this church for several years, and then he went off to be a missionary and to do theological training in different parts of the world, especially Africa. And he came back, and he was preaching on his life verse, which was, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, out of Philippians 1.21. And at one point in that sermon, he said, um, he said, he was quoting John Wesley, he says, As long as God has work for me to do, I am immortal, but if my work is done, I'm out of here. A few minutes later, he started with this phrase, and when I go to heaven, and immediately he stumbled, grabbed the side of the pulpit, and fell backward to his immediate death. He had a heart attack on stage while preaching on heaven and on the life that is to come. And his son wrote an article about this afterwards, and he said, my dad died doing the thing he loved most and the thing he was most passionate about, preaching the gospel and telling people about the life that we can have after death. And so this morning, as we come to this chapter, we're going to look at that because Jesus' death was victorious, so will ours be through faith in him. Because Jesus' death was victorious, so will ours be through faith in him. I'm going to look at this passage. I'm going to break it up into two points, and then I'm going to kind of conclude with a third point, bringing the themes of victory and death together. The first point I'm going to look at is Jesus' trial. What goes on in this passage when Jesus comes before Pilate, and you have this exchange take place between him and Barabbas, And so what you have is Pilate bringing Jesus before the crowd. And as we saw, it was customary for Pilate, the governor, to release a prisoner at this time. The time was Passover. And so Passover for the Jews was a time when they remembered the Lord's deliverance. They remembered that the the lamb had been slaughtered, that the blood had been posted on the door, and they were set free from captivity in Egypt. And so during this feast of Passover the governor would allow a prisoner to be set free, probably kind of correlating with that theme of deliverance. And so he had had this conversation with Jesus, and it says in the text that he was amazed by Jesus in verse 5. He had been amazed by Jesus, by his lack of defense of himself, by his silence, by him acknowledging that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate was amazed. In the other Gospels, you also see encounters with Pilate and Jesus where Pilate is asking Jesus as if he's this authoritative teacher, Jesus, what is truth? Help me understand, what is truth? Pilate's own wife actually came to Pilate and said, have nothing to do with this man. I had a dream. You need to have nothing to do with him. So Pilate has Jesus here that the Jews have turned over to him to be put to death. And this Jesus has amazed him so He says, you know what, this one day of the year when I have a captive that I allow to go free, let's bring Jesus up, and then let's bring Barabbas, the worst of the worst. And let's let's compare these two before the crowd. So he brings up Barabbas that we're said, it says he's a murderer, verse 7. He was a rebel, a murderer, and a leader in the insurrection. So this guy's a violent no good. And then you got Jesus, the miracle worker, 
the healer of many, the one who had healed many of these crowds, friends and family. And Pilate puts these two before the crowd and says, surely this is no comparison. You can almost imagine maybe Pilate saying, maybe, maybe they'll let Jesus go. He doesn't deserve this. And so Jesus and Barabbas are standing there, and Pilate gives them the option. And what do they do? They say, we want Barabbas to go free. Crucify Jesus. And Pilate says, why? And they said all the louder, crucify him. And if you remember from last week, this crowd, many probably who were the same part of the crowd that had cried out, Hosanna. Which means, save us. Save us, please. And now they were, they were crying out, crucify him. Which we said, really is the same cry, isn't it? In order for us to be saved, Jesus had to be crucified. So here's the crowd crying out, crucify him. And so Pilate gives in. Jesus, in all of this time, didn't fight back, didn't defend himself, didn't speak up for himself. Isaiah 53 actually says in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. This is our Jesus. You remember last week we said he turned his face towards Jerusalem. He knew it was time. It was time for him to be delivered up. It was time for him to lay down his life for his sheep. It was time for him to, to breathe out the breath of life to his people who would believe in him. So Jesus is sent to his death. So that's the first thing, Jesus' trial. And then the Jesus' death. It says after they scourged him, they sent him off to be crucified. And, and you're probably familiar with the passion story. This idea of Jesus, this true fact, historical fact, that the Romans developed one of the cruelest forms of torture and punishment for their criminals. And so Jesus was scourged, his flesh ripped open by whips that were laden with shards of glass and metal, his flesh torn open, bleeding to death. And then this Jesus was given a cross of wood that he couldn't even carry. It says that Simon of Cyrene and others had to help him carry his cross because he couldn't even carry his cross. And off he goes to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of death where criminals were to be crucified. And Jesus is lifted up on this cross, this cross that was a creative, a creative evil a torture device. And at one point, a centurion, when he, when he witnesses Jesus' death and sees Jesus cry out and give up his breath, he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, throughout this whole passage, you've seen the phrase come up, King of the Jews, over and over and over. King of the Jews, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. I think that's Mark's really way of pounding that phrase into us. This really is the king of the Jews. He really did die, but he really is king. And even his charge, the Romans would take a, a plaque of wood often and put it on the top of the cross with the, with the accusation, with the charge of whatever that criminal had done. So the robbers to the right and left probably had something about that up there. They, were, they robbed, they thieved. Well, Jesus' charge is that he was the king of the Jews. 
Actually, some of the Jews, they even asked Pilate not to put that up there. Why would you put that up there? That's his accusation. And so this is the king of the Jews who is being put to death. And then this centurion, Pilate, Pilate is um, asked if he could have Jesus' body after Jesus has given up his last breath. Someone comes to Pilate and says, can I have Jesus' body to bury him? And Pilate is amazed. He's, he can't believe Jesus is already dead. And part of that is because the cross, the crucifixion, was designed to be prolonged so that the suffering might last longer to the point where when it was time for them to really die, they would break their legs so that they could no longer push themselves up to catch their breath. But Jesus' bones were never broken. He died before that moment ever came. And Pilate's amazed that this Jesus has already died. So he asked the centurion, most likely the same centurion that witnessed Jesus' last breath. Seems to be the same one in the passage. And he said, is he really dead? And the centurion said, yes, he really is dead. Now let me just stop for a second here. The Romans knew what death looked like. There's some arguments out there against Christianity and against the resurrection that says, well, maybe he just passed out. Maybe he wasn't really dead. The Romans, and especially the centurions, they were professionals at this. They knew what death looked like. And a centurion who was also a soldier and a leader of a battalion of anywhere from 80 to up to 5,200 people, 5,600 people, this centurion was a leader of soldiers. He knew what death looked like. He knew what a, what a lifeless corpse looked like. And this centurion affirmed to Pilate, yes, he really is dead. And so they took Jesus' body and they laid it in a tomb. And that's Jesus' death. Now what we find out from these two things, his trial and his death, Several times in all the Gospels together, it says Jesus had several words that he cried out from the cross. We heard one of them in this passage. Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the Son of God, crying out to his God, why are you forsaking me? You know, if you look at the Gospels and Jesus' conversation with God in prayer, every time he talks to God, he calls him Father. Except for this moment. Where he's experiencing the separation and the anger and the wrath of God towards sin that we deserved. Jesus was forsaken so that those who are in Christ will never be forsaken. He cried out, my God, so that we could cry out, my Father, Abba. Those who have received the spirit of adoption. And that's who this Jesus is. He also cried out, in this passage it says, he cried out loudly and gave up his breath. In other passages, we actually know what he cried out. He cried out loudly, it is finished. Tetelestai, which is a legal declaration. It's fully paid. You owe no more. Your debts are forgiven. Jesus has paid it all. It's finished. Our death and our salvation is accomplished through Jesus Christ. 
And then it says, Father, he said in his last breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, after Jesus has accomplished the work of salvation, separation from the Father, experienced the pain and sin, the pain of sin and the result of sin, which is the punishment of hell, God's wrath towards sin, he's able once again to call God Father. My Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so, what does all this mean for us? On Easter morning, why focus on Jesus' death? Ten years ago, there was a British artist by the name of Damien Hirst. And he created what he called his masterpiece of all of his art. This masterpiece was a skull, a real human skull, of a 35-year-old man from the 1700s. And he had dipped this skull in pure platinum and then covered it entirely with diamonds. One of those diamonds directly in the middle of the forehead was a pink diamond worth $8 million. The total price that they put on this skull was $98 million. When he was interviewed about this, this art, this piece of art, here's what he said. He said, I hope this work gives people hope. We won't live forever, but it shows a feeling of victory over death. Friends, we don't have just a feeling of victory over death. Because of Jesus and his death on the cross and his conquering death, being raised to life by the Father, he doesn't just give us a feeling of victory over death. He gives us the victory over death and sin and hell forever. That anyone who believes in him will not be forsaken, but will have everlasting life in heaven with the Father. It's not just a feeling. It's a reality. It's a historical fact that this Jesus really died and he really rose from the dead. So what is this victory? What does this victory uh, encompass? What does it all contain? Well, I've got four things under this, this theme of Jesus's victory, our last point here. The first is that death could not hold Jesus. We already sang about that, right? Death could not hold you down. In other words, death had no right over Jesus' life. Acts 2, 22 to 24, when Peter is preaching the first sermon of Pentecost, he says this, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men this Jesus of Nazareth. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Why? Because he didn't deserve it. Jesus lived perfectly. The wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned. He didn't deserve death. When he died, he was conquering death and satisfying God's wrath for us. But once he died, the grave had no claim on his life. And so God raised him up, conquering death forever for Jesus and for those who believe in Jesus. So death had no claim on Jesus, which also means for those who are in Christ by faith, death has no claim on us. Death cannot hold us. We are united with Jesus in his death. Several passages speak of this. Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. 
Another passage says he was the first fruits of the dead. This means that Jesus was the first of many. He was the firstborn and the first fruit of many who would be made alive. Ephesians 2.5 says, We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus, that we would be alive with Christ. Death has no claim on those who are in Christ. Romans 6, 5 through 11 says, We are united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, because our old self was crucified with him, and we have died with Christ. Now, this is getting into a little bit of deeper theology, theological waters, a, a topic called union with Christ. And what this is talking about is that everything that Jesus did on behalf of his people, when we place our faith in him and when we are identified as those who are in Christ, did you know that phrase, in Christ, is the main way believers are described in the New Testament? Christian was actually a derogatory term. Other, other, other times it says followers of the way, Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. But the most popular description of believers in the New Testament is those who are in Christ. And what that means is that everything Jesus accomplished we accomplished with him, not because of us and our goodness, but because we get the credit for what Jesus did. That means we get the credit for all of his righteousness, all of his perfect obedience, and we get the credit for his death. The wages of sin is death, but if we are in Christ, we've already died to sin. We've already died in a crucifixion like his, because God placed our punishment on his son Jesus for us. So if we are united in our death with Jesus, we will also be reunited and united in a resurrection like his. This is a promise for believers. Death cannot hold Jesus, and it cannot hold you if you have faith in him. And so death can't hold us. It also means that Jesus defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Believers who have died often are described as just sleeping. They're just sleeping. We'll wake up one day when Jesus comes back. We're going to wake up from this long sleep of death. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. For Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, later on in that chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' death was victorious. And because Jesus' death was victorious, our death will be victorious. For those who are in Christ, death has been transformed. I was doing, I, we hosted a funeral here a few years ago of a lady who... Um, had been a missionary with her husband. Her husband had predeceased her, had died before her, 
And at her funeral, they were telling a story about when she was on the phone with a friend who had called to check in on her husband. Her husband had been uh, in bad health, slowly deteriorating, leading to what was sure to be his death. And this friend called her on the phone and asked. He just said, hey, I was calling just to see how your husband's doing. And she said, oh, he's, he's doing much better, much, much better, doing really well. And he said, oh, wow, that is so good to hear. Could I speak with him? And she said, no, he died last week. He's in heaven with Jesus in no more pain. That's what death is like for believers. Death has been transformed. Death has been changed forever for those who are in Christ. Our death becomes our victory because we get to be with Christ forever in heaven. So Jesus has transformed death. This is the last point under this third point that I wanted to say. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. We don't want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. There it is again. Believers who die, they're just asleep. That you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Remind each other, remind one another, our death is not the end. Jesus' death is victorious, therefore our death will be victorious for those who are in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. And so, with all of this, what, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this? Well, many of you probably in the last year have seen death. Many of you might be thinking you're nearing your death. Maybe that scares you a little bit. Maybe it scares you for family members, friends who are sick. Charles Spurgeon, on his first devotion of a a devotional book that he wrote, morning and evening, the very first entry of that devotion, he says, with a sense of joy and hope, he says, maybe this year is the year that we enter our eternal rest. Maybe this year is the year where we will enter into that time with the Lord forever. Almost in hopeful expectation, Charles Spurgeon is looking forward to his death. And so for you, maybe that is this year. Maybe it's a a friend or a family member. And so the first question to ask is, do you know this Jesus? Not, Not just do you show up once or twice or three times a year on special services. Not just do you go to church regularly every Sunday just to get a good feeling or a spiritual high. But do you really know Jesus? as a savior, as one who conquered death and hell for his people? And are you trusting in him by faith? Have you come to him and acknowledged, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that day in and day out, I do not do 
what I think I should do. I do the very opposite of what I'm supposed to do. And I don't do what I am supposed to do. God, I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus died and that through faith in him, I died with him so that God, in your justice, you've got no punishment left for me. You put it all on your son, Jesus. I believe. And so do you know this Jesus in that way? Do you believe in this Jesus, a savior for real sinners? So that's the first thing. Are you ready? Are you ready for death? The other thing is, for those who are in Christ, as we've already said, Jesus has transformed death. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who, um, who was a martyr of the faith, a pastor in Germany, a Lutheran pastor, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this about death. He said, No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God or heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick for that hour. <laughs> Those who have been brought into faith in Christ, are you homesick for heaven? Are you looking forward to being with Jesus forever in heaven? He said again later in that same quote, the life, life only really begins when it ends here on earth. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible if only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power. That is just what is so marvelous about death, that we can transform death. And it's not so much that we transform death, but that Jesus has transformed death for us. He's transformed death from being the last enemy to being our friend, the very doorway through which we enter eternal life with the Father He's transformed death from being an exit to being an entrance into the kingdom of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10.9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe there's someone in this room today who is thinking, yeah, but not me. My sin's too great. I keep going back to it. There's no way Jesus could love me or forgive me for that sin. Um, several years ago, I went ziplining in the Asheville area. And I was up there with a group of people, and one person was just really afraid to go down this zip line. They were afraid that it wouldn't hold them, that it, it wasn't strong enough. And the, the instructor at one point said, if you took this cable and hung a tractor trailer from it, it wouldn't snap. It's plenty strong enough to hold your weak little body. <laughs> and... That's true for those who are in Christ. We might feel like our sin is way too heavy. 
Our burden or our guilt is too much. But Jesus is saying, I'm the eternal Son of God. Your sin has nothing on me. You can't out my grace. It's more than enough. Just believe and rest in me for salvation. Bring your sins to me. Acknowledge them. Don't excuse them, but know that when you come to me in saving faith, you really are forgiven, and you really do have eternal life forever. And then the other thing this means for those who are believers is that Jesus has really broken the power of sin in your life. He's given you the Holy Spirit to fight sin. You can't do it on your own, but He has given you the victory forever over sin, but He's also given you power now to fight sin through repentance and faith in Him. So you keep looking towards the cross. You keep looking to Jesus. You keep looking to the Holy Spirit to bear His fruit in you. And you continue in faith and in repentance through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus won the victory on the cross for those who are trusting in Him. Therefore, those who are in Him also have victory over death. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank You for Your life. Thank You for Your death. Thank You for Your resurrection. We thank You that truly You have been victorious over sin on our behalf. And that no amount of work by us could accomplish what you have done. And so help us to trust you. Help us to believe in you. Help us to turn from sin and, and, and give them over to you that we might be forgiven. And help us to think differently about death. Not to run after it, but to be okay with it. And to look forward to that day where we will be with you forever through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.